Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the mic for thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. In this episode, you'll hear from Catherine Switzer, one of running's most iconic figures, known not just for breaking barriers, but also for creating positive social change. First of all, Catherine, thank you for talking with us. Today, we're really looking forward to having you speak at our North American Summit in Boston this fall, where you'll discuss your experiences as a runner and a marathoner, overcoming adversity, empowering women, and more. I am so looking forward to this session for Cornet on, in Boston on October the 16th. It's, um, it's called Resilience in Motion, hashtag Boston Strong Resilience in Motion. And I'm, I'm going to be joined by two other people who are really, really outstanding. We're going to be talking about, you know, what, of course, running, but not we're not going to be asking people to go run. We're talking about what running can do in terms of resilience, perseverance, determination, diversity, inclusion, all those wonderful things. So I'm really looking forward to this session. Fantastic. We're looking forward to having you there. And it was in Boston, of course, uh, Catherine, that you made history, even though you didn't set out to do that. When you gathered at the start of the Boston Marathon on April 19, 1967, you just wanted to run the race. You had put in the training. You simply wanted to run the marathon along with everyone else running that day. You know, I did. I was enamored with the Boston Marathon. I, I couldn't go very fast, but I could go long. I was training with the uh, men's team at Syracuse University. If you can imagine, this is way pre-Title IX days, and there were no intercollegiate sports for women at Syracuse University. So I <laughs> was training with the men's team, not officially, and they all were wonderful to me. And one of the guys there was an ex-marathoner, and he was regaling me with stories of the Boston Marathon. And it was like it was the the day in his life when he was the hero in his life, and, and he was so rhapsodic about it that I just fell in love with the, the, the concept. So we trained really hard. He was really hesitant. He didn't believe a woman could do it. Um, and then one day in practice when we, yeah, right, when we ran 31 miles together and he passed out at the end of the workout, he was utterly wow. convinced. Yeah, he was utterly convinced that, that of women's capability. And, of course, it was a turning point in both of our lives when we realized, you know, that um, women had astonishing capability that nobody was recognizing. So that was a very important moment for me. And, um, and my reward was to go to the Boston Marathon. He would help me uh, enter and take me there. So it wasn't that I was going to Boston to prove anything. I was going because I loved to run, and I was so inspired by this guy and some other guys on the team came with us. So we were there just to, you know, go to the mecca of running, if you will, the Boston Marathon, right. the biggest, mm -hmm. greatest race in the world. And and I was excited and proud of being a woman. And my coach insisted that I officially register. That was the sticking point. Exactly. And at that time, women were not allowed to officially enter the race. And, you know, sitting here today in 2018, I'm sure that's hard for the current generation to imagine since today uh, more than 58% of all runners out there in races are female. You know, that is so true, Tim. And I'll tell you, um, when my coach insisted I officially register, I said, is, is it against the rules? And um, he said, I've got the rule book here. We went through the rule book, and Tim, I got to tell you, there was nothing written about women not being allowed in the marathon. 
So I said, mm-hmm. ooh, I think we're pushing a point. And he said, you know you are, but I'm really proud of you. But you don't go into the Boston Marathon without a bib. And you got to pay your $3 entry fee. You're an official uh, registered athlete with the Federation. And so you got to do this. And so I said, gosh, I'm going to be noticed. And he said, I know, and I'm proud of you. It was really, really great. So I, I you know, paid my $3 and, and signed the entry form. Here was the next sticking point, and that is I signed my name K.V. Switzer. I did that because my name is an odd spelling on the Catherine. My dad misspelled it on my birth certificate, and it was always getting misspelled. I wanted to be a great writer. I wanted to be J.D. Salinger or T.S. Eliot. So I started signing my name K.V. Switzer and, uh, and went to Syracuse, in fact, to go to journalism schools so I could learn writing. And um, it stuck, and I signed that form without even thinking about it, K.V. Switzer, and they thought K.V. was a guy, not a girl. So that (laughs) that was the next coincidence in history. That was quite a collision. (laughs) Exactly. Well, they ran for a surprise. And so you're at the start. You're warming up and getting ready to run. Uh, What was going through your mind? I know it was sort of a cold and rainy day, maybe not a lot more than that. They were they were in for a surprise because uh, a nice cold and rainy day. We you know we were surprised that it was so cold and miserable. But being from Syracuse, we were, were prepared. That's for sure. But uh, we actually wore everything we owned. And um, my coaches said, "Bring your old gear. And we'll throw it away on the during the race." Um, and so then I had to wear this this baggy old sweatsuit during the race. <laughs> um, but it was it was probably an interesting. Um, uh, thing that happened because of the bad weather and me being in a baggy sweatsuit, officials obviously you know, couldn't notice that I was a woman. Now, every guy in the race noticed, and they were wonderful. Yeah. And they were dressed exactly like I was. And they came up to me and they'd say, oh, it's great. You're going to run. I wish my wife would run. I wish my girlfriend would run. So my welcome with my peers was terrific. Um, and was I nervous? Sure. As I was warming up, I was nervous the way every runner is nervous before a big race and especially before a marathon because, you know, in a marathon, anything can go wrong. Even if you're the greatest runner in the world and you're in the shape of your life, things can go wrong in 26.2 miles. So I was nervous about that. I was confident with my fitness, though. Um, and so I went to the start line. I felt quite buoyed that, you know, there's, there was really um, no doubt in my mind that I could finish. Um, I just hoped for everything to go right. Mm-hmm. So the race begins, and you settle into your pace. You're you're running along with uh, your coach and your boyfriend, and I think you're at about the four mile mark somewhere along in there when you sense that something's wrong. Tell us tell us what happened next. Well, you wouldn't believe this, but as guys were swooping past us as we were running along, um, and everybody's saying, "Hey, go for it!" You know, we're with you all the way, all that kind of stuff. Along comes the press truck. Now, why does the press truck start in the back of the race? Well. <laughs> The races in those days were so small, and this was a huge race, 600 people, right? They started in the back, and they came along the side, and they were filming backwards from the back of this truck. And along beside this um, press truck was a bus, and on the bus were the officials. So uh, the press went crazy because they saw this girl running, and I'm wearing bibs. I'm I'm certainly a woman. Hair is flying. And... um, they started filming me and and peppering me with questions and, and hey, you know, KV, what does KV stand for and that kind of stuff. But the guys on the bus were teasing the race director and really ribbing him and saying, there's a girl in your race, you know, um, what are you going to do about it, Jacques? His name was Jacques Semple. And he mm-hmm. jumped off the bus in fury and went after me. 
um, uh, grabbed me. I didn't see him till the last minute. He came up behind me, grabbed me, and um, tried to rip my bib numbers off and cursed at me and said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers, and was really out wow. of control. Yeah, it was. It was a very, very ugly incident. You know, I went from waving to my mother on the nightly news to suddenly being, you know, attacked by this official. And um, my coach was screaming, you know, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. Leave her alone. And he batted my coach out of the way and came back after me. And at that point, my boyfriend, um, who just happened to be a 235-pound ex-All-American football player, uh, <laughs> threw, threw a shoulder charge into the official and sent him out of the race instead. And my coach yelled, run like hell. And But you can imagine how that felt for a 20-year-old girl running mm-hmm. her first big race, um, how embarrassed, terrified, unwelcome I felt, marginalized. You know, like, what have I done to upset this big, important race? And um, now the press is very aggressive. What are you trying to prove? Are you a suffragette? Are you a crusader? And I I didn't even know what was happening. You know, I wasn't there to prove anything. I just wanted to run. I was proud of myself. But the best thing that happened at that moment was, and you you have to understand, how did a 20-year-old girl make this decision? I turned to my coach and I said, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. Because if I don't finish this race, nobody's going to believe that women can do this, that they deserve to be here. I have to finish the race. They think I'm a clown. They think I'm a fool. They think I'm making a joke of this. And, um, you know, there's no joking with the marathon, as you well know, because you're a runner yeah. yourself. And um, and it was a moment of incredible decision. That's one of the things I want to talk about in my speech uh, when I come to Cornette. I want to tell people that all of us in our lives have a moment of enormous decision. Sometimes it it doesn't seem big at the time, um, but those decisions to make the right choice are incredibly important. And um, I believe I had the the courage to make that decision because I'd been running since I was a girl. My dad and mom had encouraged me to, to run because they saw how empowered and confident I felt when I ran. Um, I felt like I could accomplish anything, you know, the, the, that I had a victory under my belt nobody could take away from me. And suddenly somebody was taking that away from me. And I knew as much as in, in that split second that I, I felt like I should maybe step off the course or I was so ashamed I wanted to go home, you know. I realized that if I did that, nobody would believe in women. So I um, I had to finish, and it was probably the most important decision of my life, and it led to so many other things. But but I know I know we're getting ahead of your questions here. So um, I just wanted to say that that was the important thing from from that moment, as um, as, as iconic as that photo has become. Because you see this happened in front of the press truck, so that photo went around the world uh, and yes. still does. It's kind of one of those <laughs> those ubiquitous pictures that, that recall an era and evoke a time where uh, women were misunderstood and maligned, and we use that as a rallying cry often in the women's uh, and in the civil rights movement. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, looking back on it now, um, how did that moment in that race change your life? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, but it created enormous positive change, and it became, for me, not only a mission, a desire, um, a dream, but a career. So what happened is, Tim, it, it, the, as I crossed Heartbreak Hill, which is at 21 miles, you know, you cannot run 21 miles and stay angry anymore. 
I had murdered this official every way a person could be murdered up to that point. And by the time I got there, you really realize what's going on. Your 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 brain in in a distance race or in anything arduous um, or just rep- repetitive, you know, will create amazing clarity. That's one reason I really advocate running for so many people. But at 21 miles, I said, my God, it's not the official's fault. He's just a product of his time. The fault is in us and how we need to change. And the only way people can change and believe in themselves is to create an opportunity for them. I suddenly realized there were women out there who could do anything if they were just given a chance to show that they could. Um, And they weren't there. Other women were not in the marathon um, in in any great numbers. Um, There were several, of course who had run before me um, without much fanfare, but, but largely ignored. And, and I realized if women only had the opportunity to feel as good as I felt and empowered as I felt, that they would be out there in, in the hundreds and thousands. Who would have, have believed then by the time I finished the race, I had two objectives. I wanted to become a better athlete because I knew I would be pilloried for what, what was a slow time in those days. Four hours and 20 minutes was considered a very slow time. And, um, and, and I wanted to create opportunities for women to to participate, to, to, to have that wonderful sense of empowerment. So what happened is I became a good athlete. We'll talk about that in a minute. I worked very hard for that. I'm not talented, but I can work hard. But the, the other thing is, is that I really then really honed in on creating opportunities. And with that, I, I uh, put writing skills to work, created a business proposal um, on how a company could sponsor a global series of races and even get the women's marathon and the Olympic Games. And uh, at the time, of course, people thought I was, they thought I was a crazy person, smoking poppy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But I did it and eventually had a series of 400 races in 27 countries that convinced the International Olympic Committee to include the women's marathon in the Olympic Games. And at the same time, I had become a pretty good athlete, so I knew that the potential out there was huge because if I could become a good athlete, almost anybody could become a good athlete. So, and then how that morphed into to a television broadcasting career, writing books. But the bottom line, always, always, Tim, of pushing the the cause for women creating opportunities for them to be included and to see running become most one of the most egalitarian inclusive and um and wonderfully health-giving activities in the world and you never could we never would have imagined this 51 years ago and we have a long way to go of course you know in terms of the rest of the world but again i'm getting ahead of your questions here so um let no, me let you get right. back into the game <laughs> <laughs> that's fine Catherine. thank you so so this big uh race in boston the iconic race in 1967 was really just the first of many marathons to follow for you how many have you uh, completed now well, that's a good story, too. I, I've completed 42 marathons. Um, uh, after Boston, um, you know, the next big race in, in the world, which was, was created like in the early 70s, was the famous New York City Marathon. And then I won that in 1974 um, under very difficult conditions. In those days, it was in Central Park. It was four laps of Central Park, which is extremely hilly. And the day I ran, it was close to um, a, a – uh, uh, 
temperature humidity index of about 100 degrees. It was horribly hot and humid. Uh, and in the race, a thunderstorm broke, um, and we were, were pelted with rain and lightning. But I managed to run a 307, which won the race. Um, and as you said, it was, uh, it was the greatest margin of victory in the history of the New York City Marathon. It was 27 minutes, which is pretty astonishing. <laughs> but, that's, Tim, that's only because so few women ran. So, you know, if, if the field were as big as it is now, it, of course, nobody, nobody would win by 27 minutes. But it just shows you how far we have grown. And it also shows that, you know, um, you know, we have to run under any conditions. Just like in life, we need to show up on the day, uh, close the deal, uh, make the speech, whatever it is, no matter what, the day is the day. And you, everybody's either running under the same sun or you're under an obligation to, to perform on that day. And um, that's what we all do as grown-up people. You know, we don't say, oh, I don't feel like it today, walk away. If you're successful, you show up and you deliver, And uh, even when, when things are tough. And um, that's why I love running. It gives us such incredible lessons from that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So you mentioned, Catherine, uh, that you were helpful in establishing a, a series of women's races in, in the 1970s. I believe that was the Avon series of races, and, and including a marathon, and that paved the way for the first women's marathon at the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. You mentioned that earlier. That was 1984, and I think you were in the broadcast booth that day, and I can still see the television coverage. I wasn't in L.A. that day, but I can see the television coverage and, you know, Joan Benoit is coming into the Coliseum there. She's in the lead, and she's running the first-ever Olympic marathon for women. You know, how did, how did you feel, given what you had accomplished in the past, when you saw her coming into the Coliseum? Well, it was an incredibly wonderful moment. And to put it in headlines, I would say, to me, that moment was as important as giving women the right to vote. Because the right to vote was about in 1920 was about our social and intellectual acceptance. This was about our physical acceptance because the marathon is the longest event in the Olympic Games for men or for women, and everybody knows it's tough. But also, around the world, everybody knows distance. They all know that 26.2 miles or 42.2 kilometers is a long race because whether they're in Afghanistan or in Paraguay or in the United States, they've either driven over the distance or they've ridden a bike over it or they've walked it or they've ridden a donkey over it. They all know it's a long way to go. And now we were watching on television, 2.2 billion people watching on television were watching women run it. So it was a, a moment that changed the whole playing field. You know, it's a moment that let people know women can do something as heroic and as difficult as men. So that was a huge, huge moment. Um, of course, you know, the 90,000 people in the stadium screaming and cheering was awesome to hear <laughs> because, yeah, because, you know, well, yeah, sure, of course, she was an American and taking the first gold, but it was a tr it was an amazing triumph over um, adversity, as a marathon always is. And the streets of Los Angeles were pretty warm that day, and she came in uh, running one of the fastest, you know, well, very, very fast time. I mean, she would have won the men's Olympics, I think, every year up to 1952 or something. So, you know, it was it was exactly. brilliant. She was in the low 220s or maybe the mid 220s, something like that. Fantastic time. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was a fantastic time. Really, really amazing. And and what it it kicked off essentially was um, a social revolution. 
And I think so many people were inspired by seeing this, that, that they began to run, not themselves to become Olympic athletes, but to go out and experience the sense of accomplishment of covering miles, whether you're out for, uh, you know, a, a mile every morning or you're out for 15 miles a day. You know, you have that sense of, of overcoming the impossible. And she was a real beacon for us. It was a very, very important moment. And for me, it was a, it also a funny side thing. I mean, I was doing a TV commentary. So people say, my God, you know, how did you become a television commentary? You're sitting there with Al Michaels and microphone and in the blazer and everything, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's because, you know, I, I showed up. This is another thing I want to tell people uh, in my Cornette speech on October 16th is amazing things can happen when you just show up. I realized uh, that ABC didn't have anybody that knew knew anything about a women's marathon, and they hired me. So, you know, uh, sometimes you just put up your hand and and say, hey, I think I can help with this. Um, um, Other amazing things happen. I went on to then do broadcasting of the New York City Marathon, the Boston Marathon, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, the Olympic Games. Uh, several other times, world championships. I mean, another career emerges when you do something and then you develop onto that. Um, I, I'm really also excited, uh, you know, with with this speech in Boston because afterwards I have a breakout session. I think I'm getting ahead of you here, but um, I'm having a breakout session after the speech on take charge of your body, take charge of your life, and right. I'm happy that that the CRE professionals have an active role in wellness in the workplace. But I think of wellness um, as several other things, not just not just us um, going out and running and get, getting good healthy. That's one thing. But of your whole health, the whole body health, of, of the social and the cultural and the emotional well-being that's so important in terms of um, realizing that we can do much more than we ever imagined, that we can bust stress, we can get better sleep, that we can make better decisions. Those are all the things I really want to talk about, and I think it's going to be a really good and active session. Not the least of which I'm going to talk about also is aging, because you asked me about how many marathons I had done, and I said 42. Mm -hmm. Well, the last one was in April, um, this April, when I ran the London Marathon. And the the year a few months before that, I ran New York City again, and of course a race I won, but I hadn't run it in 43 years. And then the Boston Marathon in in 17, which I ran for my 50th anniversary. So how lucky <laughs> I am! Me. Yeah, how lucky I am to have good health. But the other thing is, is that I don't obsess about it, but I keep on top of it. And the thing I do most is I make sure I try to get three or four runs in a week keep up with it and the amazing things can happen great advice there great advice so you know what what other advice would you have Catherine for for someone who's new to the sport and who just wants to start running I'll tell you what first of all it is so easy so cheap and burns more calories than anything else so I have two pieces of advice the first is park your sneakers by the door and then put them on and just go out and start walking and get used to getting out the door with your sneakers on every day for about 10 or 15 minutes. And suddenly you say, wow, I really deserve this for myself. And then Mm -hmm. just sort of pick up the pace and walk and jog to the next telephone pole and do that until you're putting jogs together for the whole 10 minutes, the whole 20 minutes, and just let it go from there. The second piece of advice I have for you is to get a buddy 
you know, a buddy always keeps you honest, and you'll never keep a buddy waiting. And I think this is especially yes. important for, yeah, especially mm-hmm. important for women, because women say, "Oh my God, I'm too old, I'm too fat, I'm too slow. People are going to laugh at me." Let me tell you, nobody is looking at you. <laughs> nobody, believe me. Oh, most of the most of the people out there running are women anyway, and you don't need to hide in the dark, and you don't need to wear your baggy clothes. Who cares? But get a buddy, and the two of you can chit chat the whole time and have a good time, and um, and cover the miles and have a chance to get a break from your day, and a and a break from the stresses of your life to get out and do this together. That's to me one of the most important things. Tim, one of the things I'd like to talk about real briefly right now, though, is this whole concept of of the buddy. Um, I now have a foundation called 261 Fearless. If you can imagine um, that bib number the official tried to rip off of me in the first 1967 race was um, number 261. And it has become Mm -hmm. a number meaning fearless in the face of adversity, totally organically. Um, some girlfriends uh, and I sat down and we said, this is getting really very powerful. We better do something with it. And we've created a nonprofit called 261 Fearless, which is basically um, an empowering organization and movement where we go out and create a series of community clubs, meet runs, and get women to do just that. They have a buddy. They get together one day a week, and they start walking or running, and they're so many women out there who live in a fearful situation. In fact, in life, I'm sorry to say, most women live in a fearful situation. And that woman may not be in Saudi or Afghanistan or North Africa. She could be your next-door neighbor. And right. we know that if we can get those women to walk and run together and talk, they can get their fearless from each other. And it is really true. The the reason 58% of all the runners in the United States now um, – uh, and also more in Canada, by the way, uh, are women is because they're not looking to be Olympic athletes. They're looking for that sense of empowerment, that sense of accomplishment and self-esteem that running can give them. And so that's what 261 Fearless is all about. And we encourage everybody to join us. Just go to 261fearless.org, start a club, become a friend, um, and follow us. You know, I think that this is going to be – it's already a very big global organization. It's only three years old. But it's going to really change. It's going to change the face of fitness, health, and empowerment in women around the world. I'm totally convinced of it. Outstanding. That's so great to hear about 261 Fearless. That's uh, super, super news to hear. And I think we're just about out of time for our interview um, uh, today, Catherine. But thanks to you uh, for speaking with us. And uh, uh, beyond that, thanks to your determination and perseverance that day in Boston. Uh, back in 1967, you know, that became a galvanizing moment, not only for you, but for women's sports and indeed for women everywhere. So we are thrilled that you're going to be in Boston and speaking at our summit and in that breakout session. Uh, it's, a, it's a real honor and privilege for me to be able to speak with you today, and we really look forward to uh, seeing you in Boston. Tim, I look forward to seeing you and everybody else in my town. That would be great. <laughs> great. Look forward to it. Thanks again. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.